Uh, my name is Steve, and I'm the executive pastor here. It was nearly 10 years ago now, in October 2010, when I was sitting on, uh, in the basement of a friend's house, and Paul Moomore, our lead pastor, said this. He said, I was out running today, and the Lord spoke to me and told me you're going to be our next staff member. And I know you get weird thoughts in your head when you run. I get that. Um, and so, but I, I laughed at him. And I said, ha ha, very funny, Paul. I will help you find the right person, but it's not going to be me. See, uh, at the time, I had a great job that I loved. I was director of human resources for a company in Westfield. I'd been working there for 21 years. Uh, I was making a very comfortable six-figure salary. My wife and I had just built our dream home. And uh, I designed it, and she was the general contractor for it just a couple of years before that. And uh, there's no way that we could afford to live there on a ministry salary. So despite my love for Genesis and all of the volunteer positions I'd held over the years and all the roles I'd served in, I politely declined and said, uh, no thanks. But my wife, Benita, was there with me. And if you know Benita, you know she always has had more faith than I do. And she looked right at Paul and she said, yeah, I can see it. Uh, I'll never forgive her for that. Uh, fast forward a few months, January 2011, Paul and I are in Haiti together. I had this opportunity, um, I was kind of a bike nerd, and uh, this woman came on campus, this dear older woman came on campus, and she was in a, um, a hand crank wheelchair that was driven by a chain like a bicycle, and it wasn't working right, and I was able to fix it for her, and she invited me into her home. And I remember walking into her home with a couple of other our team members and uh, just being amazed at this little shack that was about 10 feet by 15 feet. And she had seven family members living with her there. And in that moment, the Lord uh, spoke to me and said, uh, you have rooms bigger than this in your house that you never go into. And that was all he said. And um, it really grabbed at my heart. And I uh, came home from that trip and I started um, doing some devotions in the morning. I've always been an evening devotion person. I just want you to know you can be a follower of Jesus and not be a morning person, amen? But I started doing devotions in the morning and I would go down in my basement and read my Bible and pray. And one morning, right after I got back from Haiti, I was reading my Bible and I was praying and I heard as clearly as I'm speaking to you right now, a voice say to me, you need to sell your house. And I actually kind of looked around the basement to see if someone else was there, but it wasn't. I believe it was the Lord. And, um, and so I went upstairs and my wife said, how was your quiet time? And I said, it was good. I think we're supposed to sell our house. And she said, did the Lord tell you that? I said, yeah, I think he did. And so she said, okay. I told you she's always had more faith than I had. And so uh, in January 2011, we put our house on the market. January, February, March, first half of April, we not only didn't sell our house, we had zero showings. My realtor said, I've never seen such a thing in my life. Never seen a house that had no showings. It's priced right. Uh, it's a beautiful house. There should be people looking at it. And so uh, in April, I was doing my devotion. I was down in the basement and I was praying and I was really giving it to the Lord. You ever just like give it to him? You know, you ever like, God, you told me to do this. You told me to sell my house. Why aren't you coming through? You ever do that? Like, he can take it. He's a big God, all right? He knows your thoughts, so you might as well put him in words and tell him what you're thinking. So I'm, like, giving it to the Lord and saying, um, what, what is going on here? You told me to do this. And um, 
again, just very clearly, he spoke to me and said, you need to quit your job. And I said, no, that is not how this works. You sell my house, okay, and then I'll get a new job, and then I quit my job. So I go upstairs, and um, my wife said, how was your quiet time? And I said, I think I'm going to stop going down to the basement. <laughs> Our new house doesn't have a basement. So uh, I said, I think I'm supposed to quit my job. She said, did the Lord tell you that? And I said, yeah, I think he did. And she said, no, that's not how this works. He has to sell our house and then you get a new job and then you quit your job. I said, that's what I told him. But we prayed about it and talked about it. And uh, eventually in April, April 16th, 2011, I went into my boss's office and we were already scheduled for a meeting. And uh, I said, hey, before we start, I just want to tell you something. He said, I said, I think I'm supposed to quit. He said, what, what do you mean quit? Quit. I said, I'm, I'm supposed to quit my job. And I'm not kidding you, it was a Wednesday. That afternoon, we got a call from our realtor that we had our first showing on our house. They came on Thursday, they came back on Friday and gave us an offer on Saturday. We had 23 days to get out of our house. And so uh, in April, 2011, I found myself jobless and homeless, but right where the Lord wanted me. You know, that day I could feel the Lord's pleasure with me and I didn't know what I was gonna do. I didn't know where we were gonna move. But I called Paul up, my pastor, and I said, Paul, I sold my house. Where am I supposed to go? And he said, come to Noblesville. We're bringing you on staff. And so uh, I came on staff in August of 2011. About a year later, we launched the Carmel campus, and he asked me to go be the first campus pastor over there. I took 130 of you guys from Noblesville, hearty souls, and we went over there and started this campus. Some of you were here when we did that and started this campus over in Carmel, and we've grown to 350 to 400 on a weekend now. And across our two campuses this year so far, we have averaged over 1,000 people at our two campuses. We have so much to be thankful for. The Lord has been so good to Genesis Church. So good, in fact. And that's why we're doing this series called Greater. We, we're continuing in this series. And that title, Greater, comes from John 3.30, where John the Baptist says of Jesus that he, Jesus, must become greater and I must become less. And so we're talking about this man named Abraham and his faith journey. But, but alongside of that, we're talking about what we believe God is calling Genesis to next in our next chapter of church life. Over the past 17 years of ministry, God has blessed Genesis in some pretty amazing ways. And that blessing comes with the responsibility of blessing others. You know, each of us, uh, personally, we've been blessed. And uh, all of us have received blessings that when we look back over our lives, we think that could only have come from God. And so uh, with those blessings comes a responsibility to be a blessing to others. And as a church, we believe that the fact that the Lord has blessed us as a church, we have a responsibility to be a blessing to our community. So last week we issued this challenge, and for those of you who are here, so far you've been good to your word. We said, could you come back every week, every week of this series? We believe this series is going to be a defining moment in the life of Genesis Church. And So last week we showed you a video of a vision uh, where we believe the Lord is calling us to next. And if you missed that, I just want to point you to, we've got a a website within a website, they call it a microsite, and it's genesischurch.me slash greater. 
And that has all things greater, including sermon video you can watch there and the vision video that we showed last week. But in case you missed it, there's a summary on page nine of your booklet if you wanna open that up. If not, I'll just walk through it here with you on the screens. Um, uh, and just over the couple minutes, again, there's a lot more in the video, there's more in the booklet, but just in a couple minutes, I wanna show you a little bit about what the greater vision is about. One of the goals of the greater vision is to raise seven and a half million dollars to do three things. We want to make disciples, reach our cities, and change the world. That first category is make disciples. Uh, that hasn't changed. Making disciples is still the strategy. This is all about the day-to-day -day operations of the church. We would call this kind of the annual budget. This is the way we pay our salaries. We um, pay the lease payments on our building. We buy bagels and coffee and do all of the ministry and gin kids and student ministry, GSM, and all the things we do. And just to give you a little background, our current budget is $1.8 million a year, which is about $3.6 over two years. Uh, that's what you're already giving as a church to support the ministry that happens here at Genesis Church. So why the big jump? Why from 3.6 to 4.2 million? Well, we're growing. We're growing, and every friend we have in the church uh, that's, that's built a new building in a church has told us that when you build a new facility, you will grow, uh, that you'll attract more people. Um, and then just like you probably have at your house, how you have a list of projects that you would, you would tackle if you had some more money, we got a list of those here at Genesis too. We got some things that we'd love to do both here and in our Carmel campus that if we had a little bit more wiggle room in the budget, we would tackle those. And so uh, we'd love to do that and reach more people. Another part of the greater vision is to reach our cities. And this is all about our facilities. We want to raise $3 million to help build a new campus for this campus, a new building for this campus, the Noblesville campus, as well as to prepare for what God has for us next in Carmel. And one of the things that we said last week, one of the things that we've been adamant about as our staff and our elders and, and some other people in our church have been praying about this is we don't want to build a facility that's only going to be used on Sunday. Like whatever we do from a facility standpoint, we want it to be a gift to our community. So we're, we're, we're talking and praying and we'd love to think of things and hear from people things that are amenities that they would love to use in the community that would make that building uh, used seven days a week, you know, 365 days a year. And so we're, we're working on that as well. Um, but, you know, we told you all the reasons last week why we think it's time to leave this place and go to a new place. Those are in the video. But uh, the other thing too is we love our Carmel location. Uh, where we are in Carmel, but if you've ever been there, one of the things you notice is that the city of Carmel is growing up around us. And so while we have a really good relationship with the landlords there, we don't know how long we'll be able to stay there. And that campus is getting a little old too, and we need to make some improvements. So that $3 million doesn't build a new facility, but it's a substantial investment in a Noblesville facility and helps us set aside some money for whatever God has for us next in Carmel. The last piece of the greater vision is change the world. This is $300,000 that we want to give away to ministry partners here locally and around the world. Places like ICF Church in Albania, uh, some of our schools. I've had uh, some serious conversations with Noblesville, Carmel, and Westfield schools about some needs that they have that aren't funded very well by the state or by other sources of funds that some kind of things that the church can only take care of. And so we'd love to be able to give to them. And then in addition to that, we love what the Lord's doing through adoption and foster care in our church, and we want to help pay for that. Now, it's important to note that this $300,000 is over and above what we already give to our ministry partners. If you're a part of Genesis, you know that we give a tenth of our budget every year to ministry partners. Plus, the last couple years, we've taken up a Christmas offering, and we've given that away. 
and this is over and above that. So uh, in addition to what we'd give away from the 4.2 million, this is $300,000 just to give away, just to show that the greater vision is not all about a building. It's about helping people find their way back to God. But we also said last week that the $7.5 million is only the secondary goal because the primary goal for us is 100% engagement. We think we only win in this if every person who calls Genesis Church their home takes that next step in generosity and joins us on this greater journey. And what that means is for some of you, you're going to commit to give a financial gift to this church for the very first time in your life. And that's gonna be so cool to see. Uh, For some of you, you're already giving, but not consistently and not very much. And you're going to have to step up and give to a level where you trust God with your finances, maybe for the first time in your life. And then other people are going to start giving sacrificially. We're going to hear stories over the next few weeks of people who are giving up vacations or deciding to wait on buying a new car or they're going to delay retirement. Some of you are going to dive into your savings or investments or you're going to uh, take borrow from your home equity to help make help make this happen. And it's not just adults. We've already heard stories of kids and students who are sacrificing to make this greater vision happen. And I can't wait to tell you those stories over the next few weeks. And so if you have your Bibles with you, open them to Genesis chapter 12. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under the seats somewhere around you. It's page 8 in the blue Bibles around the room, Genesis chapter 12. We're we're telling the story of Abraham in this series because he's a very important person, uh, not just to Christians, but in the history of civilization. You know, around the world, three major religions point back to Abraham as kind of the founder or the father of their faith. About half of the world's population, four billion people, point to him as one of the founders of their faith. And uh, what we're going to see today is that Abraham wasn't perfect. But that even though he wasn't perfect, God certainly used him in amazing and significant ways. And I think for us in the room, isn't that something we really want? Like, like, don't you want to be used by God? And don't you want your life to count for something at the end? Like, do you ever get, you ever feel like life is just all about going to work and paying the bills and taking up space? And you go, man, I really want to do something significant with my life. Well, if that's you, Abraham can be a great model for you. And we have a tendency to kind of lionize these people in the Bible and make them into heroes, but we're going to see that Abraham is a hero, but he's not a superhero. And, uh, and so if you open up your greater booklets to page 19, there's a place to take notes. And every week we're giving the message a different title. And this week at the top of page 19, if you want to fill that in, we're calling this greater trust, greater trust. We're going to talk about this situation that Abraham ran into in his life and how God wanted to use it to build his trust in God. But if trust or faith is something you struggle with, be encouraged because what we're going to see is Abraham's life was not some like continuous string of dazzling successes, all right? Um, And so hopefully that'll be encouraging for you. Seriously, before we even get out of chapter 12, which is where we started last week, we're going to see Abraham almost blow it. And so uh, if you're open to Genesis 12, we're going to start in verse 10. And it says this, Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram, remember he's Abram before he turns into Abraham, Sarah is Sarai. Uh, Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but let you live. Say you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared 
because of you. Now, of course, if Abraham tells them that Sarai is his sister, they're going to want to marry her. And so in other words, Abraham's saying, I'm so scared for my life that I'm willing to give you up in marriage, wife, so that I can be spared. Now, you may not be the best husband in the world, but I'm going to guess you've never done that, right? Maybe you're not the most thoughtful boyfriend who always gets the right gift or always does the, or says the right thing, but I'm guessing you never gave up your wife or girlfriend to somebody else in marriage just to save your own life. Now, remember that just a few verses ago, God spoke to Abram and made him a promise that he would be the father of many nations, of many people. And now, just a few verses later, we don't know how much time this is, but just a few verses later, he's scared that someone's going to kill him so they can steal his wife, so he decides to give her away instead. How can someone who had a personal encounter with God forget his promises? Oh, wait, that happens to me too. Maybe it happens to you too. In fact, my life, since I found my way back to God, has not been one unbroken string of dazzling success after another either. Um, I worked in the corporate world. I was so committed to building my career and building my image that I was taking on speaking engagements and agreeing to business trips that probably I didn't need to take, even at the expense of my wife and two young girls that were at home. You know, when we were moving to Noblesville to take this job in ministry, we only really had one weekend to look at houses, and we looked at nine, and my wife didn't like any of them, but I bought one just because I didn't want to have to move twice, and I wanted it to be on my time and not God's time. And even when we launched the Carmel Campus, I often found my value in how many people we could get to show up on a Sunday. Now, I'm really embarrassed to confess this to you now, but there were Sundays where as soon as I got done preaching and stepped off the stage and everybody left the, the building, I would go immediately to the info hub and pick up the attendance sheet and look at the attendance. And if that number was a good number, I would have a good rest of the day. And if that number was a bad number, I would mope around and think, what am I doing wrong? What do we got to improve? What do I got to get better at? You know, I can look back at so much of my life and see where I've fallen short in so many areas. And we're going to see the same thing in Abraham's life, too. I mean, in, in Genesis 16, we see him get tired of waiting on God and this promise from God, and he decides to take it into his own hands and, and go have sex with his servant, his house servant, so he can try to make this happen on his own. In chapter 17, God reappears to Abram and assures him, hey, this is the promise I made to you. Remember, I told you this. And God laughs at him, or Abraham laughs at God. Like the founder of our faith scoffs in God's face. And then in chapter 20, Abram, ha Abram has this interaction with another king and he brings Sarah with him. And again, he tells Sarah to lie about being his sister. Now you read that and you might think, oh wait, I've already read this part. But no, he does it twice. Even with his imperfections though, even with his shortcomings, we can learn a lot from Abraham's story and God uses him in amazing ways. Even with your shortcomings, even with your imperfections, even with the things that you think are gonna be showstoppers for God, he can use you in amazing ways. We're gonna learn four lessons from Abraham's story of trust today. And uh, so you can take notes on these if you want to or not. But this famine in verse 10 comes right after the promise from God to make Abram into a great nation. But he uses the famine, God uses this famine to force Abram out of his land and out of his comfort zone. 
And he goes to a place uh, in Egypt where Abram is the other. He's not the majority. It's a place where he's scared. A place where he will be forced to trust God. And that's the first lesson that we can learn is that God grows our faith by testing it. God grows our faith by testing it. We sometimes think of following God as kind of this one-time decision we make, like when we're young or maybe when we get a little older, we start uh, learning about God and we decide to give our life up to him. And so we pray this prayer and then we go get baptized and uh, boom, job done. We just get on with the rest of our lives. But really, faith is a series of small decisions and we have the choice every day to follow our flesh or to trust God and die to our flesh. And that's what we see in Abram's life. Um, faith is like a muscle. And if you want it to grow stronger, it has to be worked. You got to work it, right? And how many of you have gone to the gym and you had such a great workout that you were sore for like two or three days after that? Has that ever happened to you? Or two or three weeks, maybe, if you had a really good workout, right? That's because when you lift weights, when you, when you exercise, what you're doing, you're actually tearing the muscle fibers. You, you tear your muscles apart. And then... Uh, what happens is your body says, well, if he's going to do that again, or if she's going to do that again, I better be ready next time. And so your body builds that muscle up stronger than it was before, so that the next time you go to do it, it's stronger. And your faith is the same way. It needs to be tested and strained in order to grow. And if that's never happened to you, like if you've never had an event in your life that tested your trust in God, you're, it's going to happen. There will come a time where you'll experience something in your life that causes you to say, what do I do now? God, why, why are you letting this happen to me? How am I supposed to provide for my family now? God, where are you? And he uses those moments to grow our faith. They're testing moments. When we sold our house, that house I told you about a few minutes ago, but before we moved out, Something happened to us that really tested our faith in this whole move into ministry. It was the week before we were supposed to close on the sale of our house. And I was out of town and um, here in Indy, we got this really heavy rain. And I called my wife and said, hey, I just have a really bad feeling about this. Will you go down in the basement and make sure everything's okay? So she had the phone in her hand and I heard her walking down the steps and I heard her go clunk, 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 squish as she took that last step into the basement. And she said, oh, no. And we had about an inch of water in our basement the week before we were supposed to close on the sale of our house. And uh, the carpet was soaked, and the baseboards were soaked, and the drywall. And God used that to test my faith. He said, do you trust me? Do you know that I wasn't even on staff at Genesis yet, but the entire church staff came to my house and squeegeed out my basement and brought over fans and heaters and we got it dried out. Now, don't call the church if you get a flood in your basement. We're not the best people to do that. There are people who do that for a living. I can point you to some of them. But God used that moment to grow my faith and because of his faithfulness, I learned to trust him more. Now, that's a little thing. Maybe you've got something big happening in your life. I want to show you the story of one family, the family that's really dear to me in our church, who had their faith tested by some difficult circumstances. Take a look at this. My diagnosis was um, I had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Um, I had two different types of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. It was in my abdomen, my pelvis, my liver, all my long bones, and my spine. 
Um, they told me that the cancer was incurable and um, I told him it was not. God has always been a very important part of my life and probably the first and foremost part of my life. But I, I, I always spent time reading the Bible, praying, uh, I always went to church, and I always, I, always, I always put God first, at least in my heart. And I was reading the Bible every day, and, and I remember just praying to God, and I was just like, God, I have this wonderful life. I have this wonderful husband and these wonderful kids, and we have no worries in the world. And I was like, I just, I feel like I need something else in my life. I was like, I feel like I need something, you know, or, you know, some, I need something in my life. So um, a couple weeks after that, um, that's when I got the cancer diagnosis. I told them that, um, that it was going to be cured. And they kept, you know, they told me my course of action and they told me that I was supposed to have radiation. And they told me that after the radiation that I would not be um, able to have kids anymore. So, and my doctor and I kind of played a little game <laughs> where I said, where I would tell him that I knew that God had a plan for me and that God had another uh, child for me and that, um, that I wasn't gonna need the radiation, I wasn't gonna have the radiation. And he kept saying, oh, but Stacy, you are <laughs> gonna have to have the radiation. There's no way this is gonna be cured and you don't have any more hope for any more children. It's really amazing the peace that he gave me. I was, I, I remember talking to him and saying, God, I know you're gonna heal me. Like that thought never even like crossed my mind that he wasn't gonna heal me. I was, I, I said, God, I'm concerned that I'm not gonna do with this what you want me to do with this. I was like, I am somebody who hasn't lived a life for you my whole life. I, you know, I don't even deserve, I, I, I actually said, I don't deserve this cancer. Like, why are you, why are you, you know, um, why, why are you using me to do this? You know, I was like, he must, you know, I knew he must trust me. So I was like, so I'm worried that you're not going, that I'm not going to use this the way that you want me to use this. Definitely helped, helped both of our faiths, I think. I mean, we, we both fully believed that God, that God would, would heal her. Um, we, we never really had, had to doubt from the beginning. At first, I did not like that my hair was going to fall out. And I remember praying to God, like, please don't let my hair fall out. But then I remember thinking, I have to let my hair fall out. Otherwise, nobody's going to know what I'm going through. After that, I just felt so free. But not only that, but I was able to go around and people would then notice, um, you know, that I did have cancer and I was able to use my not having any hair as an opportunity to, to share a share. Um, God with others that I would not have been able to if I had still had my hair. So I would, no matter where I went, I had people come up to me all the time um, just to, you know, tell me, you know, say something to me to try to encourage me. And I was able to share God with those people. When we came to Genesis, I had had my last treatment the week before we came. Three months later, I had to go in for a PET scan to um, see where, where we were in our whole um, treatment. He was scanning and he's scanning and he's scanning and he looked up, he goes, Stacy, it's, it's all gone. You know, I don't see anything. He goes, you look 100% back to, you know, you look 100% back to normal.
About a year and a half after I had my last treatment, um, I noticed some changes that had came back. And my oncologist was like, well, you need to go see your OB before you come see me. She goes, Stacy, you know, like, I don't know how to tell you this, but you know, you're in perimenopause and you don't have any more eggs. And I remember thinking, oh, that's fine. <laughs> and I hung up and I was like, and I remember thinking, oh my, she probably thinks I'm crazy. But I just thought this is another way that God's going to prove that this is him and this is not anybody else. Like he is going to prove and this is gonna happen. And all these doctors keep telling me I, it's not gonna happen. And I know that it's gonna happen. Six months after that, I end up in her office pregnant. <laughs> so that's how faith came to be. What were you doing? Huh? Are you ready? Faith was born after my cancer diagnosis, after I was healed, and after um, my perimenopausal diagnosis. After I um, found out I was pregnant, I was super, ex super excited that God had um, kept his promise to me and that we were showing everybody that he was real. God put the name Faith in my head. And I thought, well, that's not a name that I would ever have picked out. I knew then that that's what I was supposed to name her, that her name was going to be Faith, um, and that I would be able to forever tell my story because of her name. We are the Joseph family. And we want God to be greater. And we want to be less. <laughs>
Maybe he's making you into an Abraham. Let me just give you a suggestion. As your pastor and as your friend, don't, don't rush out of it. Don't be in such a hurry to get rid of the pain that you rush out of it and miss what God wants to do in your life. Oh, and remember, he's never late. He's never late. When, when he leads you into a valley, he can provide for you while you're there. When he takes you through the storm, he can protect you while you're there. When he has you in conflict, remember, he can prepare a table for you in the presence of your enemies. But God's got this, but he's serious about building your trust in him. He wants you to have greater trust. Our third lesson is this. Our trust grows when we understand God's commitment to us. Years after God gave Abraham the promise of this son, he gave him a son. And then years after that, God told Abraham to go sacrifice his son, Isaac. And Isaac was not just the thing that Abraham loved the most. He was the fulfillment of God's promise to him. And he was the way that God would fulfill the promise that Abraham was going to be a father of great nations, of many peoples. And, but do you know what Abram did when he was called to make this sacrifice? He marched right up the hill, ready to do it until he was stopped by God. Now, how did a guy like Abraham, a guy who would throw his own wife under the bus, how did he grow so much in trust and in faith to do what God asked? Well, I think we see this story back in Genesis chapter 15. God tells Abraham, here's what happens. God tells Abraham, don't be afraid. I am with you. And Abram says, yeah, that's great that you're with me, but you still haven't given me a child. And so God leaves Abram out at night into the desert and he points him up to the sky and he says, look at all the stars. And this is like the desert at night. This isn't like Indiana in February with the monocloud that hangs over everything for a whole month and you can't see anything. This is in the wide open desert at night and there's millions of stars, so many stars, there's no way you could count them. And God says to Abram, look at all the stars in the skies. That's how many descendants you're going to have. And Abram believes him, scripture tells us. But then he says, but how will I know? And here's what happens. Genesis 15, 9 says, the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, them, all these to him, all these to the Lord, cut them in two, and arrange the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Now, this in ancient times was how a covenant was formed. Today, we just sign our names on a contract when we make a promise. Uh, but in those days, they cut some animals in half and they laid out the bloody pieces on the ground and then the two people would walk through the middle of them. I'm sorry if you had a sausage biscuit for breakfast or something. But they would walk through the middle so that a river of blood splashed up on their cloaks and then they would walk around with their cloaks bloody all day as if to say, let this happen to me if I ever don't fulfill my end of the bargain. And so here's what happened. Genesis 15, 12 says, as the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep. So they're supposed to make this covenant and Abram falls asleep. But look at verse 17. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch. Now this represents the presence of God. If you know anything about the Old Testament in Exodus later, we're gonna see God represented by a pillar of fire. 
right? So this blazing torch passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, to your descendants, I give you this land from the Wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. Now, here's what happened. Here's what that means. The Lord is the only one that walked through the covenant. The Lord is the only one who participated. And the meaning is clear that God was the only one on the hook to make sure the covenant get kept, gets kept. And so if God backed out of his end of the bargain, it was God's blood that would have to pay the price. But if Abram backed out of the bargain, it was God's blood that would have to pay the price. This is the clearest picture probably we get of Christ in the, in the entire Old Testament. Just like Abram fell into a deep sleep, the Bible says that we were dead in our sins and trespasses. The Bible tells us that on the day that Jesus was crucified, the whole sky turned dark and blood flowed like a river from his side. Now, did God's son die because God didn't keep his end of the bargain? No, he died because we didn't keep ours. This promise and understanding God's commitment to us helped Abraham grow in his trust of God. And for us, understanding that Jesus paid the price for his sin, that God was on the hook for the covenant, we know we can trust him with anything that's happening in our lives. When you mess up, the blood of Christ covers it. If you've messed up in your marriage, he paid for it. Messed up in your finances, it's covered. Messed up with drugs or alcohol, he's already paid the price for that. Feel like you've disappointed people, maybe your parents, you've disappointed your friends, you've disappointed your kids, you've not disappointed God. He already paid the price for you. And finally, there's one other lesson we can learn from Abraham's story, and it's this, that greater influence comes from greater trust. If you're going to do something great for God, if you're going to have more influence, you've got to learn to trust him more. And when we learn to trust him more, he trusts us with more influence. We see this in Abraham's story. Before he trusted God, God made Abram into a great nation. And if we're going to help people find our way back to God, Uh, find their way back to God, it's going to take greater trust as a church. We've got to learn as a church to trust God more. If you're going to do something, if you want God to do something through you in your ministry to help people find their way back to God, he's going to have to do something in you first. He's going to have to grow his trust in you. He's going to have to grow his faith in you so that he can reach more people through you. You know, for many of us, our financial life is where we trust God the least. And one of the great benefits of this greater campaign is that all of us are going to have to learn to trust God a little more. If you picked up a commitment card last week and you've got that with you, I want you to get that out right now. I just want to take a couple minutes to walk you through this. If you don't have one, there's one on page 17 in your booklet. There's a replica of that. You can get that out. I just want to show you on this commitment card uh, what's on here. This very first blank on here uh, is where you would put what you normally give in a year to Genesis Church. If you, if you participate in giving financially, thank you very much. That's what you put on that line. Here's what I normally give in a year. But we believe that God is calling all of us to take the next step in that. And so that second blank is uh, what you believe God's calling you to do in addition to what you already give. And, and if you don't give anything right now, and you just put a zero in that first blank. That's great. We want to know that, and if you're, especially if you're going to start giving for the first time. So what is God calling you to give per year over and above what you already give? I want to tell you that my wife and I, we've had a little more time to think about this than you have. Uh, we've known this was coming for a few months, but we are already praying about giving the biggest gift that we've ever given to Genesis or to any other ministry in our lives. And we know that's going to take trust and faith in God, and so um, we're praying about that, but I'm excited for that. 
So if you multiply that by, uh, you get here that, that total per year, you multiply that by two, and down here in the fourth blank, that's that number there. And I know some of you, some of you have uh, investments or bank accounts or something, you, stored resources that you're wanting to give from. Uh, there's a place to put that there, and that plus your two-year commitment is your total commitment to greater. And so would you put this in a place uh, that you can be praying about it and uh, ask the Lord to like grow your trust in him. Uh, one thing I wanna show you is on the back of that commitment card or back on page 16 of the booklet, uh, there is a chart of all the gifts that it's gonna take to do what we wanna accomplish as a church. And the number that intimidates me the most, honestly, is not the seven and a half million at the bottom, but in that far left column, you see the number of gifts needed to make this happen. That total is over 700 gifts. Now as a church right now in the past year, we have about 400 families that regularly give to the ministry of Genesis Church. But we know that doesn't represent by far all the families in our church. And so it's gonna take, as I said, each and every one of us to make this happen. Hey, on page 19 in your booklet, there's a few questions around uh, this, this today's sermon. I'm just gonna give you a minute here at the end uh, to reflect on those questions and uh, grab a pen and answer those as the band comes out and then we'll do a song to close our service today. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, um, we want to trust you more. I want to trust you more. Lord, would you grow my faith? I know that you've used things in my life before to do that. I'm going to just ask you now, would you use the things that are happening in my life now to grow my faith, to grow my trust in you, Lord? Would you do that for us as a church? Just like you used Abraham in amazing ways, we want to be used in amazing ways. Would you help us to do that, Lord? We're going to have to trust in you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.